G'day, Guitar Wank listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Your host here, Troy McCubbin. You have no say in it. Uh, we have a great show today. Someone that you're going to really enjoy listening to because he's got some great stories about a f- great guitarist we all know and love uh, that we lost a few years back. So uh, stick around there for that. Me and Bruce get to talk to him. Also, we are looking for blog writers. If you are a blog writer and you want to submit a blog, we are going to have a blog set up on guitarwank.com. So go to guitarwank.com, check that out. And if you have something to say, you want to write about anything to do with music or a topic and uh, submit it to Guitarwank, we would love to hear from you. I believe Bruce is going to start writing a blog for the guitarwank.com website. So that'll be fantastic. So make sure you go there, subscribe, sign up and... Um, share it and we, we're just trying to build a, a bigger community with that kind of stuff so maybe you have an album you have uh, some gear that you want to write a blog about uh, or some just lessons whatever you want we are open so go to guitarwank.com and uh, you can email us at guitarwank at gmail.com and put in the heading the subject heading blog and then uh, we will know what that's all about. Also, if you can please leave us reviews, you know how it all works. It makes a huge difference uh, for just the podcast and the website if you just leave us some reviews, give us some feedback, some positive feedback. Again, lie. It's uh, We all do it, so just do it for the podcast. All right, let's get into it. Thank you so much, guitarwank.com. Go there, support us in that way, and uh, sit back, and hopefully we've got some great more conversations coming your way. All right, have a great day. Be safe. Holy snapping duck shit. Can you hear me? What? Yeah, good. (laughs) Your, your, your quarantine little love 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 uh, cabin, I guess. My quarantine little love nest. I guess I'm I'm late to the whole COVID thing, so I thought I'd catch up by catching it. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, no one wants to feel left out. <laughs> oh my god! Well, welcome, guitar. I mean, what, that's what you get for licking doorknobs, you know. I, you know, I thought my dog only did that shit, but. I got to stop doing it. It's not paying dividends. Oh, you're right. That's right. You've got a dog. Well, sort of a rat, really. Yeah. Well, barely call it a dog. <laughs> g'day, g'day, wankers. Hey, wankers. G'day, wankers. Welcome. We're here live from uh, Nashville. Bruce is in, uh, in uh, well, California, IA. Yeah. And uh, we've got a great guest on today's show. I have the COVID. I thought... Uh, Jesus, you're just admitting it? It's like admitting you have syphilis or something. It's interesting, man. When I got it, it I went through all these emotions, um, panic, and then fear, and then shame, and then anger. I'm probably missing some others. And then retracking all my steps and who did I get it from and then who did I potentially give it to it's very scary, and I'm lucky, and I'm, I'm in a position where one, I'm I'm healthy, two, I'm vaccinated, and um, it's crazy because three days ago I was just feeling a little off, and I thought it was just a cold because I've been getting colds in Nashville here, out here, and I thought for sure my we didn't have it, 
And I said to my missus, I'll just do a COVID test just to, to be sure. And it turns out positive. And, um, and my kid and my missus, thankfully, did not have it, which is amazing that they don't have it. And my kid had a cold. So I was blaming. She gave it to you and she just turned tested negative because she's over it now? Well, she's tested twice and she's still. But I mean, so when, by the time you finally tested her, she was negative again. She was only sick for two days, two, three days. So well, I don't she, know. Anything's possible. I don't know. I mean, you know, what do we know about this? You know? Yeah. You're right, man. But I got to say, um, I feel super grateful, but massive eye opener, what people have probably gone through. Like, so, like, when, when, when you get your food, do, do they bring it and, like, slide it under the door jam or something? Yeah. They only pizza and uh, and tortillas? <clears throat> no, it's weird because Sarah's not doing any of that. <laughs> <laughs> it is weird. Are you just on your own and they're letting the door dash back? <laughs> oh, I keep in my room. I've got this cough now. <laughs> Sorry. Um. It is, it's a weird situation to be in because you think about all those other people that had it way serious and, hey, maybe this is early stages for Troy and I'll go downhill and in a couple of weeks you'll be doing the podcast with a, a fill-in host. Oh, God. <laughs> God. But you do think yeah, about it. Other- you just really scared everybody in Guitar Wank world. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's probably about half of them gone taking their bets. We'll yeah. try to get through this or it'll take him out. but. You just think about all the people that have gone through this stuff in the last year, man, and how scary it is um, and how quickly life can go south. I mean, imagine you're on your own and you have got a health issue and then you get this shit and then all of a sudden you've got to live with the enemy and you're by yourself. I mean, I can't even imagine what people have gone through. So, um, yeah, please be careful out there. It's, I mean, I have no idea. I think I got it at the gym. Duh. Well, there you go. You know, yeah. teach you anything. You're trying to get healthy and you get sick. So, like, <laughs> you know, I, I just did it. I, you know, I really hadn't thought about going to the gym lately, but now that does it. I ain't going there. Yeah. You know, what you a, know? Oxy, a great oxymoron that is, right? Is right. I mean, I mean, I was playing it safe as at the gym as far as I was concerned, but clearly not good enough, you know. So, well, or maybe your kid gave it to you, or you know, maybe even your wife gave it to you and she didn't test positive. You know, I mean, you don't know. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's what viruses are about. They're they're like little, like freeloading, you know, you know, hobos that just jump on things and grab people. You know, it's yeah. I feel like the enemy is right here now. And before we would get so panicked. You know, because you listen to the news and that, and you get so nervous about going out and everything. And now that the virus is at home, um, it's, it's weird. It's really weird. But I, I, I do feel a hell of a lot more thankful that I've been vaxxed um, and I am healthy and I don't have any pre-existing conditions. But, man, I just feel for those people that have, uh, that have had to go through, through this stuff alone. That's, that's some heavy shit, really heavy shit to deal with. Yeah. So um, my heart goes out to those people, but hopefully I'll be fine. I'll bounce back really quick. And I'm so happy my kid and my missus don't have it and they continue to not have it. And they'll get a excuse not to talk to you. Well, yeah, she finally found something. I can't talk to you. Before before they didn't have an excuse. Now they do. (laughs) (laughs) You've got the code. We're not coming near you. He's got the Rona. 
Get away right? from me. <laughs> you've, uh, you've made a mess of everything, mister. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, we'll see how quickly I can get over this shit. But damn, man. There you go. I said to myself, I will not get the COVID. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're all doing our best not to. And, you know, I got boosted. You know what I mean? And, uh, but that, it doesn't mean you don't get it. You know, it just means you're protected better. I guess yeah. I guess that's a breakthrough, Kate. I'm a breakthrough? Is that what they yeah, call you're it? a breakthrough, man. You know, maybe oh. you should start a band with all the people that have gotten breakthroughs. Well, I gotta, breakthroughs. I, I got to give a shout out because I felt really horrible because I, obviously once I tested positive, I had to think about people that I was just with and um, I have a really great friend and a great talented guitarist here in um, in Nashville who's been helping me out with a lot of things in the Nashville way. Val, uh, who's an amazing guitarist, he drove me and my guitars to a guitar tech to get my guitars set up the other day and I spent a half an hour in the car, I mean an hour round trip in the car with him and, um, yeah, I called him the other day and he was just like, I'll be right, mate. He was more Australian than I was. He was like, what do you mean? I'm around this shit all the time. I'll be right. So, Val, love you, mate, and um, thank you so much for everything you, you've been doing for me. I really appreciate that. And and Joe, the guitar guru, if you want a guitar set up in Nashville, this is the guy to go to, Joe Bavono, and it's um, guitar guru T T N for Tennessee.com, guitar guru ttn.com um talk to joe he's amazing as well and uh he's already finished my guitars i'm gonna go pick them up when i'm feeling a little bit better but joe thank you again for being such an amazing uh person and being so cool as well and i thought for sure they were gonna go you bloody aussie bringing the covid right, right yeah he brought it from california yeah but um yeah so thank you val and joe you guys are great men Appreciate you and um, yeah, there you go. Right. So what's what's been? You can't beat that. You haven't got better news than that. No, no, no. I mean, big big week. You know, um, uh, what happened? Uh, start of the month. You know, I managed to pay my mortgage once again. I can't believe it. Um, uh, I'm on the cover of Jazz Guitar Today magazine. What? Yeah. I guess they got everybody else. So, um, and Pablo, <laughs> of course, left the planet. A wonderful, sweet, inspirational, incredible talent of a musician. Uh, he left us a couple days ago. And that was super sad for me. I'm, he's an old friend. And, uh, of course, an amazing inspiration. And um, when, when was the last time you saw Pat? Oh, it, uh, the last time I saw him was about a, just before Corona hit. He was in Santa Cruz, California, playing the Kumba Jazz Center. And I went up to, to hear him play. I'm really glad I did. I'm really glad I did. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we hung out, you know, a good half hour, you know, and, you know, just talked about old times and stuff. And he was the brilliant, eloquent player he always had been you know and uh it was really great and uh we've lost a great one but you know he had a wonderful life and he inspired a lot of people and really changed the world in a lot of ways so if if all of us can do do you know a part of what he did we're in wow. good shape you know so is it 
apparently there's a really good documentary on Pat. There is an interesting documentary. It's really good. Yes, there's that. And of course, there's tons of recordings and tons of live performance. Really, anybody, you know, I mean, luckily, you know, he lived in a time where there was enough documenting of it where we'll all know what he brought to the world and his story and the inspirational, the mysticism, the spirituality, the gentleness, the love, you know. And the funny thing is, when you look at him, you almost get this vibe. This is really hard ass East Coast, you know, kind of angry Italian dude or something, you know. <laughs> but that was totally not what he was like. Really? He was a gentle, sweet, honest, but gentle, sweet, spiritual, you know, person. Yeah. And, um, and kind of other almost not inhuman i mean in some ways just that he was transcended things right and uh uh what a what a great what a great human being you know and uh like all our lives are better for him having been here so even the people that don't know who he was he still created so much good stuff that it's it's hard to measure you know, it's something for all of us to aspire to. How old, how old was Pat? Uh, well, good question. I would guess mid-70s or 80, something like that. Okay. And he, for amazing <laughs> to become such an amazing guitarist and then lose that ability to play guitar and have to restart all over again. Right, right. right. He had brain right. problems that he overcame and relearned to play. Pretty amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Well, Cheers yeah. to you, Pat. He, um, yeah. yeah, I was lucky enough to to Tony, obviously Tony Clever and my teacher, give me a bunch of Pat Martino studies to to learn and patterns and stuff to learn, and it, I know it helped my playing immensely. Learning his stuff, just yeah. incredible. He was he was another another level. Yes, he was. Um, and everything good on the the. The jazz album. I mean, you obviously you're you're, uh, you're on vintage guitar magazine. You're doing all these high profile. Uh, you know, there's supposedly stories coming out, um, but we'll see. You know, I mean, like obviously with Pat going, maybe I've been pushed up back or pushed away or given up on. You know, <laughs> um. You know, you never know. But, yeah, things are going along, getting some calls for gigs, sending out CDs. Uh, of course, um, something we're going to announce on Facebook in the near future is uh, we're, everybody knows of our one-minute uh, lessons, which were actually more like two- or three-minute lessons. <laughs> you know, that's me. Anyways, that we did for our, only our Patreon subscribers, all you people out there, you know about those. There's a, what, a, how many, like 20 something of them, right? It might be more than that. But yeah, okay. there's, there's, I forget the number. But yeah. Okay, but we have decided because of, uh, we're going to just double down on all this and we're going to do 30 second ones now. <laughs> because people deserve less. <laughs> no, no, they deserve, deserve more, less. but by getting less. Anyways. You know, our, our, let's face it, our, the world is going spiraling into something else. So 30 seconds is about as much we can ask for anybody. So I'm going to be posting 30-second lessons <laughs> on 
the site as well as the previous one minute ones that are already there. And I can't promise that there won't be some redundant information because I can't remember what the hell I did. So, but I'm going to be pu pu publishing that soon. I just kind of wanted to let the things die down with Pat and everything so we could announce it on Facebook. And, um, and then we'll start up with that. I'm going to make some, like, you know, play this chord and use it this way and practice it by, you know, we're really going to go for like half of Instagram worth of time. And uh, I'm excited about that. I've got some cool ideas for that. Um, enjoying my time with my students at USC. I'm practicing a lot, enjoying playing what is now my guitar, but it was once Barney's guitar. And it's every day it's sort of moving into the house. You know, it's like. So you haven't, you haven't gone back to the red guitar at all. No, I put it in the case and it's been there ever since. I, I'm that way. That's just the way I am. I play one guitar. It's like you've got one voice. I don't need any more than that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm enjoying it. And so I'm going to stick with it. I mean, obviously, the Red Guitar Show will probably come back to earth, as will Cow Bop. And um, funny thing happened to my L5 while it was sitting in the case all these years. It, the neck got all funky, you know. Some about Gibson. I mean, we love Gibson guitars. They play great. They sound great. But in my opinion, they're really shittily made. <laughs> <laughs> and um, IL-5, which is like either 69, 70, or 71, something like that, uh, sitting in the case, the neck went completely fucked up. I mean, I'd been playing it for years, right? You know, right. I, it, and the neck is, needs a reset which is a major thing, you know, but I'm going to do it. And that's going to be my cow bop guitar. So I got the red guitar for the red guitar show. I've got the cow bop guitar for the, cow, the L5. And I've got this guitar, you know, Barney's old guitar for, which is um, my main jazz box. And that's, so I'm entering a new phase where there's actually more than one guitar in my life, sort of. <laughs> and uh, I'm excited about it. Um, just the way it is and uh and our guest is like just texting me he's ready to go so let's he's ready to go on. yeah do you want to do you want to well we'll bring him in and you can introduce we'll him in. i think we're going to do kind of a what's my line kind of thing let him reveal to the world who he is rather than i mean we'll tell him who he is but you know i'm not going to like give the big build-up we usually give all right here we go here we go whoa Whoa! Over here! Whoa! <laughs> see, here we are. Too bad the rest of the people can't see us. Oh, I'm very happy that they can't see us. <laughs> <laughs> Roberts, uh, sir, how are you? I'm good. Hi, nice to meet you, Todd. Troy. <laughs> Troy. But I people have Troy. called me worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, nice to meet you via Zoom. Yes, pleasure, sir. Thank you for joining us. Bruce has not let our listeners know exactly who you are at the moment. He wants to play a bit of a game, so I'm going to let him run the show here. Bruce? Yeah, okay. well, Robert, I decided let's do this more like a what's my line. You know what I mean? Let's just let the world reveal itself. People have heard your work. People know who you are, really, especially all the guitar wankers here. And so uh, why don't we start at the beginning? Now, I know you're from Denver, Colorado. Yeah. And uh, you uh, tell us about how your career started. 
Um, well, as you suggested, I am from Colorado. I uh, was born and raised there in the suburbs, actually, in Inglewood. Uh, and, wow. uh, you know, uh, after graduating from high school, I, I just wasn't, I wasn't college material. I was, you know, um, in school, I studied everything music. I was in band and orchestra, music appreciation, music theory, everything had anything to do with music, but I majored in chasing skirts. <laughs> so were you, were, you, I, were you good at that at least right yeah yes <laughs> i tried to i tried to, um no i was pretty dead i was dyslexic so i was wasn't i was afraid of college you know i just thought i didn't think i would make it so i ended up in these horrible factories you know and it was you know that was the early 70s and it was it wasn't pretty so uh i don't know how i got the idea but i it what it couldn't have been my idea because i didn't uh, being a recording engineer was so off the radar, but I thought it was something I could do because I could learn it by, I could become an assistant, be an assistant and stuff like that. And um, so anyway, I ended up in Hollywood and I got a job at a studio in, in, uh, on Melrose. It's like 1977. And uh, I, uh, was searching for a job with a, a phone book and a gas station map. You know, it was like the 70s, 1977 version of Google. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was just going from one studio to the next. And I, I got a job at this little place called uh, the Music Grinder on Melrose. And uh, so I started as an assistant and I worked there for a couple of years. And then I went to MCA Music to run their publishing studio, which was really a a, a cool job because that's where I really broke from being an assistant to being an engineer. Cause I just ran their publishing studio all day, cut publishing demos. And, you know, it was before drum machines and uh, it, I mean, polyphonic synths were just coming out. So wow. it was, you know, every, everything we recorded was with rhythm section. So I just cut band, you know, I cut bands all day. It was great. So, so a publishing studio did what kind of work at that time? I mean, what's the typical day of you know the stuff you produced in those days? Uh, well, the songwriter they had staff songwriters, uh -huh. so they they would they had these things they called them red sheets, and uh, it was uh, it was on red paper actually because they printed it on red paper so that nobody could uh, copy it, and it was all who was it was all the producers and the artists who were making looking for songs to you know look had upcoming albums and they were looking for songs. So they would, they would send their songwriters into. They had these little, little rooms. They're like little, like you know, little ten by ten rooms. And some of them had pianos in them, and some of them just had guitars or whatever. And these songwriters would go in these rooms and write songs for whoever was looking for material. Sometimes they would, they would hook up with each other and write together. And then so they would come up with you know three or four songs, and all these different writers would get together with the publishers, and they would decide which songs we wanted to record and they'd come down to the studio and record them. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Uh-huh. So sometimes they would come down and just do little one-offs. I used to call them memo demos. So they would come down and just do little like guitar vocal or piano vocal demos. And then off of those, they'd make decisions and narrow it down a little bit and bring in, uh, you know, a band. And, you know, we had like the, the plimsolls were just getting going. So we used that, that rhythm section a lot and it was, you know, studio guys mostly. Right. 
Uh, and some of the right, like Glenn, do you know who Glenn Ballard is? He was oh, one yeah. of the writers. Yeah, big guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, produced uh, Alanis Morissette, wrote yeah. uh, Man in the Mirror with Michael Jackson. He's had a crazy career. And he was just kind of coming up and breaking. He was one of the guys. But they also had some writers, you know, um, like uh, all over the country, like Felix Cavalieri. You know, I don't know if you know, he was uh, from the young, the, the, from the Rascals. You know? Right. Grooving yeah. on a Sunday afternoon. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so he would come in and I'd cut songs with him. And um, uh, so that's really where I, it was. It was working there that I really cut my chops as a recording engineer. What well, what were the demos like? Were, you, were they were they throwing them together really quickly or were they getting a little fussy with them? Or was it how did that work when you guys would do the, a demo? Like they were. We were getting a little, we were getting a little fussy, you know. They weren't spending a ton of money, um, but and there it was, uh, you know, as they say now, hand played instruments, you know, which I think is really hilarious. But, <laughs> um, they were, uh, you know, uh, the Prophet Five had just come out. That was like the first real polyphonic synth that started to kind of change the way. Uh, music was because before then, it, you know, there was the only other polyphonic synth was the Oberheim, these, these Oberheim expander modules, and they could have, you could have four voices, which was a big deal back then. I mean, people don't often grasp that the old Moogs and the Arps, they were just one voice. They only could play one note at a time. So uh, it was a big deal when polyphonic synths started to happen. And, uh, but they were pretty simple arrangements and stuff. But, um, you know, we cut with drums, bass, guitar, um, um, piano or Fender Rhodes, and then everything had Fender Rhodes back then. Right. Um, percussion, and then we do some overdubs, vocals, some background vocals. Um, you know, maybe a sax solo or something, but it was pretty. That was about it. But they sounded kind of. They sounded good. You know, they were they were good players, and uh, these, and these were demos that were were they were they were handed to uh, signed artists to. to to decide whether they wanted to add them to their project, that kind of thing. Is that was right. yeah, to place the songs. Right. Yeah, they'd place them. It place them on so if an artist then an artist would cut them and then it would end up on a record, you know, on an album somewhere. Right. Hmm. Wow, that's cool. Do you remember any songs that went on to something big and you were like, hang on a second? Uh, yeah, there were I think George Benson actually cut one of them. Uh, I can't remember the titles right now. I'm sure George Benson cut one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know a bunch of those songs we cut, recorded, ended up on albums, but I can't, you know, that was like yeah. 35 years ago and I just can't um, chase it. But but you would often hear songs, you'd be like, I remember that tune. And yeah. 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 Here's, yeah. So cool. yeah. we. Were you running the board then, or what was your main job oh, for that? Oh, yeah. It was like a one-man show. I did everything. Oh, wow. I, I would, you know, set up, and I'd get there early and set everything up. You know, that was like my insurance policy to have, you know, for a smooth session, get get there ahead of time and line all the machines and get everything going. Then I would, yeah, I'd record everything, and I would mix it. Wow. That's, yeah. um, that's a hell of a way of a hands-on job to learn. Which yeah, is- and I didn't have an assistant, so I did. I would do everything. So I was the first to leave, and I mean, the first to arrive and the last to leave. Wow. So, yeah, but I was young, and it was great. You know, I was. I I loved it. It was. 
the, the only thing I, I only, I left because um, I was, I had learned so much. And I was, they treated me really well and it was a great gig. I mean, I had health insurance, you know, I was working for universal for Christ's sakes, but it was, but um, I, I wanted to make records, you know, and I was just, there were just demos. I, I just, I wanted to, to move forward. So then I went back, actually, the music grinder uh, had a, um, an opening as uh, for one of their staff engineers had left back then studios had staff engineers. So uh, I went back there as an engineer and also as an assistant because the stu- they had grown and they were bringing in, they were getting bigger projects were coming in. And so I would assist for other engineers. And also I could, you know, hop in the seat and record stuff or do it, do what was ever necessary. And so that, so one day I got booked as an assistant where I wasn't engineering it, but to assist on a job with, um, uh, violin player, um, John Pani. John, <laughs> nice. John Luke was coming in. Yeah. And I heard that they were, they were going to have this great guitar player was going to be with him, right? So anyway, I was just running around, setting everything up. And then, you know, after there's people running all around. And then this guitar player guy shows up. And uh, I show him where he's going to set up his amp. And, you know, we had to put back in those, it was a small room. So we put foam around the amps, you know, and it kind of affected the sound of the guitar. And I was apologetic. And I said, you know, I'm, you know, I hope this doesn't, you know, this is okay. And he's like, oh yeah, sure, man. That, you know, whatever you have to do. And he was, you know, he had a British accent. He was really sweet, almost um, uh, very polite and um, accommodating. And uh, it was the first time I met Alan Holsworth. (laughs) How old was Alan then, you think? Well, I think that was, it was about 83. That was 83. Wow. So he's nine years older than me, or he was. um, So I was like 28. So... 37. He's like 37. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He was already, a, of course, a well-known player in his own right, or he pretty well established himself by that time. Correct. I mean, Oh yeah, he was, yeah, because he was, he had already, uh, you know, had been, you know, worked with UK and, and all those groups. He was like, yeah, he was, he was really well, he was well established. I didn't know who he was at the time, but, um, he was pretty well, yeah, he was pretty well established. I mean, he was definitely established. He, he, um, he, he, he had one solo album out. It was that, the IOU album yeah. had come out. He was, so. Wow. So, so how did that record end? What was that record that was, he was recording on? Uh, I think it was called Individual Choice. Yeah, Jean-Luc Pani. And, um, Later that year, like six months later, I hear that he's, he's coming back. He got a deal and he was coming back to do a solo record. And uh, I, was, I was on the project again as an assistant. And uh, they were using this engineer from uh, this English engineer uh, named Jeremy Smith. And uh, so that studio had 
a big room, like a big kind of warehouse with a, a um, concrete floor, brick walls, like a, you know, a 20 foot bow truss ceiling. It was a really cool big room and drums and everything just sounded great in there. And they had a small room and uh, Jeremy want, decided he wanted to record in the big room, which I was completely on board. I thought that was absolutely the right thing to do. And uh, so we cut all the basic tracks for this, this EP it was going to be an EP. I think it was six songs. And um, they uh, were make, they made some rough mixes to send to the, to Ted Templeman. It was uh, Ted Templeman was the uh, executive producer. Wow. He was on Warner Brothers. So yeah. this is like a big label. This is a big deal. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sure everybody's read about that. You know, it was uh, Eddie Van Halen was kind of, you know, helping him get signed and everything. And so it was a big deal. And I remember there was kind of, it was kind of, there was some nervousness about these rough mixes, you know, going to Ted. And Ted didn't like this big room sound. He, did, he thought they were too reverby. And so he wanted him to re-record everything in a smaller room. Wow. So that, it was, you know, I just, I have a distinct picture in my head of Alan walking through the control room with this, just this total stressed out grim face, you know, like, cause he loved some of the stuff they recorded and not only did they have to re-record it, you know, it just, you know, that just played hell with the budget, you know, cause you got to start, you know, so they recut the tracks in the small room and uh, everything went on hold for a little while. And I was, they had a little dub room at that studio and I was in the dub room making some copies and the owner came in and he asked, say, wanted to talk to me. And I went into the control room and he said, um, well, Alan's project um, has run into some budget problems and the engineer, Jeremy Smith, has is not going to do it and he can't get his rate or he's on to another project or something like that he bailed and so i was wondering if you'll do it and for like your assistant rate because i had like an assistant rate and an engineering rate and i i was like oh yeah i i knew the project i really liked alan and um uh it was a chance to work on a be you know a great credit on a great album i was just you know i was like yeah let's do it so you know, later that, I think it was later that day, that e afternoon or evening, Alan, I was setting up and Alan walks in the door and, you know, and uh, he was thanking me for helping him. And he's like, you know, he was, a, I don't know if you ever met ever had ever met him, but he was very kind of uh, apologetic, like, like, oh, sorry to put you through this, man. You know, kind of, <laughs> thank you for helping me. <laughs> He's very kind and very sweet. And so I helped him carry gear in and we just talked about the studio and the setup and how he wanted to go. We talked about miking and stuff because in England at the time they were doing, they were miking amps from like, you know, four or five feet away or something. And the, they sounded kind of roomy and I was talking about close miking them and stuff. So we uh, kind of got set up and started putting up some mics and, and everything. And later that evening, I mean, you know, like, I don't know, towards the, towards like 11 o'clock or something like that, he was trying to describe this a guitar tone that he wanted. 
And the console we were working on was a Trident TSM console. And the EQ on that console are these little tiny faders. And it's, they're a little bit, it's different. It's not like a real console because it has little faders for EQ. And so I'm trying to dial in a sound. He's trying to describe it. And I just thought, you know, he, this guy knows what he wants. And so I just said, you know, well, come over here. Let me show you how to, how to do this. So I showed him the EQ and explained it. And then I kind of stood back and I just saw him just kind of go, he just kind of like dropped in and all of his attention went down. He started twisting the knobs and I went, oh, I thought, oh, I know how to work with this guy. I just have to let him be a part of it. So I just, you know, and I, I had never been, I was never territorial. So right. it didn't, it, it didn't rub me wrong at all. Like a lot of engineers would have gotten, you know, would have, but I just was like totally happy to let him jump in. And so I think, you know, that what worked out for him. I think that was part of why he liked working with me. I was just letting him, you know. So what, what, um, what gear was he using on that session? Do you remember what amps he was running and all that kind of stuff? The amps that I really remember in his rack were these Hartley Thompson amps okay. and in this and these in a Pierce, like Pierce, Pierce amplification. They had these little, it's like a I think it was just like a two-rack space amp. It could be rack mounted in his in his rack. Right. And then he had like a bunch of outboard gear, you know, that he used. Choruses and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh you, like uh on that was the road games album. And I don't think that he had the AMS gear yet, but he, he, he was using like this, this ADA stereo tap delay, which is like mm -hmm. an analog chorus thing. It's really, it's really just one delay line. And then you can tap it off of six different places and it has an LFO. So it can, you can, it'll shift back and forth, you know, and you can tap it. And so it was a really cool kind of analog you know, um, chorus thing he had and, um, a bunch of Clark technique and a bunch of st weird st kind of stuff, you know, and some of it wasn't great, but you know, oh, he really liked those Yamaha 1500s delays. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. So from there, how long did you go on and work with Alan for? So I did, so we did, um, that album um so i helped really i helped i did all the overdubs on that record it was pretty much just bass and drums when i jumped in and i recorded everything and we and we and we mixed it um and he had um three of the songs were mixed by um uh, frank zappa's guy uh who offered to, to mix them so three of the and so three of the songs on that album that as it came out were mixed by him and three were mixed by Alan and, and myself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, uh, so then uh, about a year later, I got another call from him to come in and help him re record. And that, that next album was the metal fatigue record. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's super cool. Yeah. But I have to say like one of the coolest, the cool, one of the coolest moments of the doing road games was one day he had this song called Tokyo dream and he, and uh, he asked me to put it up. And so I'm start, I'm putting, you know, I'm kind of pushing up a rough mix for him to record to and everything. Cause he, uh, we had all the amps in the control room. He always stood in the control room and, and um, recorded in the control room. And I, uh, you know, the speaker cabinets were out in the studio. Right. Okay. And so he's in there and, and, you know, we did a lot of, 
we always experimented a lot with sounds, but he, especially on this particular one, he knew what he was, he, he had a sound in mind and he was going for it. Like he already knew what he was, I could see that he was just reaching for a sound that he had already experimented with. And so I'm pushed up the thing and he's dialing up the sound and, you know, and he starts playing this thing. He's using like his, his index finger and his forefinger and he's like dropping it onto the strings and he's doing this like these hammer-ons and these slides and these pull-offs. And it's just this, it was just it, this unbelievable, shiny, you know, uh, Asian sound just spilling out of the guitar. I mean, out of the speakers. And I was, was like, oh my God, it was, it was just completely other, this like this otherworldly um, Asian texture, you know? And so that night we recorded overdub after overdub. And by the end of the night, we had this, uh, this track. It was just this. And it was still that song. Tokyo dream is one of my favorite songs I ever recorded with him. I just, I love that song. Wow. So when he was doing all that, was he, was he, uh, was everything worked out for him? Was he just flying by the seat of his pants? What, how was his approach to all that? Um, on that song, he had all the parts worked out for the, the, the front and the back part, you know, the, those, all the chimey stuff. And there's a lot of different layers in there, you know, pads and things like that. And, um, but the solo, the, his, he, he, he might've had ideas that he knew what he wanted to do for the solos, but they, those were all, um, he, you know, just improvisational. Yeah. He right. didn't have that stuff worked out. He recorded it and we recorded it and, and, and the, we punched in a lot. Yeah. I would punch that. I would, which was not easy. I mean, he would like, oh, drop me in here. Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, you've heard his solos, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 back then, punching in on an analog machine, it was destructive. Wow. So if I fucked up, I fucked up a piece of Alan's solo. No pressure. <laughs> Jesus. So. So you did it. You didn't do it onto a two track and then back to the, it was like, you didn't do an extra track and then play with it into a two track. No, it was, you were, you were actually punching in on the 24 track. Yeah. We were punched in on the 24 track. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Occasionally we would do a safety, yeah. you know, you could do a safety, you could copy it to another track. So right. if I blew the punch, I could copy that copy back over. Right. You'd lose a generation, but it was something that, people did back then but um no i would you know sometimes i would drop in the same spot you know 10 times and you just you know you have to, it was tricky it, it was tricky wow and he would and he would you know he was really relaxed but he would drink he would just sit there and drink beer and play you know and he he uh, drank coors back then oh, really? yeah because it wasn't pasteurized so it was very it was this fresh very fresh beer. And um, he, he, thought, he said, he, he said something like it was still alive in the bottle, you know, uh, now he was a beer connoisseur, right. And brewed his own yeah. beer as well. Right. Uh, I don't ever think he actually brewed his own beer, but he would, um, he later on, he started bringing over these hand pumps from England. He was importing them these uh, because in the old days, they didn't use in with a keg of beer. They didn't, it wasn't pressurized. Right. They had actually a pump that they would pull the beer from and it would squeeze it through this little kind of nozzle, kind of a sound. So he would import them and then he would have, and he would have parties at his house and he would set that up like in the laundry room and he would <laughs> pour, you know, get cases, keg, uh, 
bottles of beer or kegs of beer and you'd pull it through that um, right. through that thing and it's it's a different experience because it removes some of the carbonation and the beer is just like really creamy so he was really into beer and stuff but he wasn't he i don't he, i never saw her i know i don't know of him ever brewing oh okay i thought he brewed but it, but it sounds like he yeah like everything i've heard of alan he uh he knew how to throw down, throw down a few beers, that's for sure. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and back, but he was never, I never saw him, he was, not, he was never like sloppy or out of control in the studio. Right. I mean, I've seen plenty of that in my day, and he wasn't. He was just, he was just drink, you know, sipping his beer and playing, and um, he was very calm and, you know, always really polite and fun-loving back then, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, you, and you recorded numerous records with him through, yeah. through the years, right? Yes. Up through about uh, until, uh, so I, yeah, I worked on Road Games and Metal Fatigue. Um, then there was an album called Atavacron. And then Sand and Secrets. And then, you know, in, in, in um, 90, uh, I went to Japan with him and recorded a live record. With him in Tokyo at a at a little club called the Pit Inn in Rapongi, wow. Tokyo. Yep. I've played there. <laughs> really? You played the Pit Inn? Yeah, yeah. Oh. So the cool before thing that, about before that. I mean, I played there in the 80s. Oh, okay. Okay. So this is night this was 1990, so it was just yeah. right, you know, it was yeah. And uh, very low ceiling, yeah. you know, but it had the thing that was cool about it because the pit in was like kind of in the basement. It was like half a floor down or something under the building. But on the fifth floor, fourth or fifth floor was CBS Sony. And they had a recording studio, a beautiful recording studio up there. And they had lines dropping down to the pit in and camera. So I, I sat in this beautiful studio that was kind of, like a studio, really nice studio that you'd see like in LA. I mean, you had a Neve console and it was just, you know, beautiful. And I sat in that studio and recorded this, these live shows down in the basement. And with, and we had, they had, we had a cam camera operator and everything. So I could see what was going on. Oh, it, wow. was, it, it was like, I, it was the most ideal situation for a live record. I can't even imagine, at least from my point of view, you know, Although the club was kind of a low ceiling, so that was kind of maybe a little weird, but it, you know, it was great. And it was, it was uh, um, Jimmy Johnson on bass, um, Steve Hunt on keyboards, and um, um, Hubbard, Gary Hub, uh, yeah, on uh, drums. Yep, yeah. Husband, Gary Husband's on drums. <clears throat> And that was that recorded over a bunch of nights, or was it just a one night only thing? Three nights, three nights, sorry. two shows a night, and it was that was right at the beginning of um, uh, digital recording, and uh, they had these because it was CBS Sony. They had these Sony forty eight track dash machines, these thirty three forty eight dash machines that weren't they weren't in the United States yet, wow. or they there might have been a, there were probably a few, but they weren't very you know, and so I recorded to this these digital machines and it was uh uh i and i was able to because so i was able to record one show like on tracks one through 24 then the next show you know on the 
you know, on like 25 through 48 because I, I didn't need all 48 tracks. So um, three nights on three tapes, I was able to record the whole thing. Wow. Oh, so, so it was a lot easier to kind of, was there any intercutting of takes? I mean. Well, what happened was those tapes came. So I brought those tapes back to LA on an airplane. I was sitting on my lap and um, uh, so then Alan wasn't really happy with his guitar sound. He didn't like the, the amps he used or something. So they sat, those tapes sat in a closet at his house for 10 years, for 12 years, actually. Wow. And then he, he was, con some people convinced him that, you know, there was a moment in time and that he should finish it. So at that point, I had, my career had evolved and I had, I was doing a lot of post-production and I had, and I owned my own studio called Raven's Work. It was in Venice, California. And um, we had three mix rooms and we were doing a lot of ads and things like that. And Alan wanted to transfer that tape to a machine that he could use at home. So he had, I can't remember the, what it was. Maybe it was an Akai or some kind of, but it was a hard disk recorder, but it was just a very simple machine you know you could just basically record into it and play out of it it's kind of like a tape machine i think it probably had some root very basic um editing features but um so even at that time those dash machines were becoming a little bit rare and to rent one you can't just rent it they're not going to just drop it off at your house you know so I had the machine brought over to the studio and said, and I transferred the tapes for him on this little machine. And then he took it home and, and uh, mixed it and edited whatever he did with the editing. I don't, I don't know. So he finished it himself in his home studio. Wow. So what did you, what was some of the things you noticed um, like working with Alan after throughout these years and how he approach things differently or did he was he kind of the same kind of animal when it come to that stuff or always was he changing a lot or he was always pushing he was always experimenting and then so really after uh the metal fatigue record um he started to put studio home studio together right. because it was it, it became possible for one thing yeah and then but also um it's uh he didn't have these huge record but budgets and you know you you go into a recording studio it costs you a thousand dollars or something for a day you know and if he doesn't like the solo or doesn't like what happened then you know it's it, it, so he put i i know he did it so that he could just take remove that pressure from himself and make the records he really wanted to make yeah, so yeah. after metal fatigue um a lot of stuff he started doing at home so um, I would, he would hire me to maybe go into a studio and cut the drums and bass. And then he would take those to his home and start laying his guitars on. Sometimes he would have me come down and help him mix. Or if he recorded a vocal, he would have me come down because he didn't feel comfortable doing that. But he was, he, you know, he recorded his own guitars. Yeah. And, uh, he had this thing. It was a bit, he called it the coffin and it was just a big wooden box and he could put, you know, a speaker cabinet in there and in a mic and um uh 
record an app at home without having to, you know, wake up the neighbors. Right. So, yeah. But and he used said, a power soak. He, 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 he used a power soak. He invented one actually. It was. Oh, he did. He was kind of an invent. He was um, sort of, he had, he invented this power soak. It was really kind of cool. It was in a project box, maybe, you know, 12 inches by eight inch power uh, project box or six inch power box. And he, it, and he, there was a coil in there, but he also used um, the uh, uh, the element off of a space heater. You know, those little space heater you'd have in your house. Yeah. He put yeah. that in there. And so, because it would actually get hot and it would heat it up. And it said, he said it gave it the same kind of resistance that an amp does when it starts to heat up. So he could turn his amp down and, or he could run his amp and then run it through this power soak. It would take some, the power off. Then it would go through the speaker and it wouldn't put it would you wouldn't have to have the volume, but you could still push the amp really hot. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Was he was he building his own, was like tweaking his own amps, like building his own amps and mic pre's and stuff like that? Was he going down that rabbit hole as well or not? No, no. I never saw him do that. No. No, but that that power soak became um Rocktron actually, uh kind of the 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 text there kind of measured what he was doing and figured it out and figured out a way to make it and they sold it as a i think a, a juice extract yeah they called oh, it the juice extractor yeah 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 i know that one wow yeah. so that was from alan's original ideas yeah <clears throat> that's insane yeah so you you worked with him for a lot of years obviously yeah actually um even up until um, when they started it towards the end of his life, well, uh, I got a, I was, I got a phone call from, um, this guy named Jim Snowden, who he's kind of, Jim had been around in like the record scene. He was always like, uh, working for these different labels, independent labels. And he was around, I mean, he'd been in LA kind of LA record scene forever. Right. And uh, he called me and uh, Steve Vai had hired him to help him resurrect his, his um, label uh, favored nations. And so Steve had at one point given some money to Alan to do an album and he'd never received it. And Alan was, Alan was still working on it. Right. So uh, he wanted to know if I could help, help him resurrect that, you know, help Alan finish it. And, uh, so I, I, you know, we didn't end up really finishing the record, but yeah, I was involved with some stuff right even at the end, helping him with some stuff, helping him. I helped him compile his tapes for that box set that eventually came out. Right. Right. Oh, that did come out. A box set did come out only not, uh, not on Steve Vai's label. It ended up coming out on um, manifesto. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Man. Damn. So throughout this time, you were obviously doing a lot of other studio stuff. Were you, did you get to do a lot of album stuff with different artists over the years? Yeah. Yeah. I did a lot of records. Mm -hmm. what, any, and, any, what? I worked with like uh, um, Belinda Carlisle. I did a couple of Belinda Carlisle records. I did a little bit of stuff with Stevie Nicks. I did a lot of uh, indie things, you know, uh, I worked with like a punk band TSOL and, uh, Mojo Nixon and I, mean, I just did I did a, a lot of stuff 
you know, including orchestras. I recorded some orchestra, you know, I wow. recorded orchestras and which is really one of my favorite things, actually. Yeah. So uh I just felt so like honored to be able to sit in these beautiful rooms and record all these guys, you know, scraping away on violins. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. You've seen you've seen the whole studio will just completely get upended by technology and I mean from what you were dealing with from when you first started to what you're doing now so what are you doing these days with where you're at I have a home studio right <laughs> I'm sitting in it right now yeah um, it's really mostly a mix room I don't record much anymore although I think that's mostly what I've always just been as a recording engineer but I just mix and uh um the, the last music project I did was actually uh um, for um, Mike Lent, who's oh, a guitar okay. player up here yep. in, in Monterey. I live, I live in Monterey area. And so uh, he, he had a little organ trio and I mixed like five songs for him, this little right. organ thing he was doing. Yeah. And, and I asked to do post stuff because I, I just finished mixing a documentary. And so I, I you know. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, what platform do you work in nowadays? Pro Tools. Pro Tools. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I started, really, I started working in Pro Tools uh, because it's, you know, it's the industry standard. If you know, and I used to studio hop all the time. So if you know Pro Tools, right. you can jump around. And, yeah. 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 It seems like there's a lot of choices nowadays for, is, is you think, Pro Tools is holding that position, or do you think companies like Universal Audio with Lunar and other companies are starting to sneak more into that platform? Yeah, I think their companies are sneaking in. Absolutely. And Pro Tools is, is expensive. Yeah. And I don't think it's the 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 best for certain things, you know, and uh they Pro Tools tries to be everything for everyone. And so I, I think it's just kind of overly complicated and, um, you know, like Logic, Logic Pro for Mac is like a $300 program, yeah. you know, and in some ways it'll complete, it totally competes, you know, yeah. I mean, it doesn't have a lot of the features maybe for post-production and stuff, but, um, oh yeah, people are taking chunks out of Pro Tools yeah. constantly, I think. Have you have you had a chance to check out Lunar at all on Universal Audio? I, I haven't. No, I haven't checked. I used to be a big fan of Fairlight, though. Oh, okay. I loved Fairlight. I know you're you're Australian, right? Yeah. 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 Actually, when I opened my own studio, I I built it on that platform. Oh wow! Because yeah. at the time there was there was um, well, I was working at another studio. Uh, uh, place called Pacific Ocean Post in uh, Santa Monica. And um, I was really, I just wasn't happy. And they were using this, the AMS uh, audio file, which was just really cumbersome. It was, a you know, for a, for a DAW, it was just really, uh, um, it had three hard drives and each drive could be assigned to eight tracks. So it was 24 tracks, but it was three drives. And if you tried to do too many fades or, edits or something it would it would stop playing a clip and you'd have to copy it to the next drive it was oh, just wow. really it was a nightmare <clears throat> so i'd heard i kept hearing about this fairlight 
And so I went over, I called them up and I went over to check it out. And they were recording 24 tracks off of one drive. And you could take 24 tracks and lay it on top of 24 more tracks and crossfade it, which means it's playing 48 tracks of audio and it wouldn't, it didn't even hiccup. It was, it was unbelievable. It was, there was nothing out there that could touch it. And so I felt like I could open a studio and use the Fairlight and um, not buy an analog 24 track machine and not buy, you know, all these mag dubbers and all this other stuff that in post you need. And um, so that's really how I opened my studio by embracing the technology. And it was Fairlight. That was really the cornerstone. Pro Tools back then was just the semi pro thing. Nobody, it was not, you couldn't really use it. Wow. It was around, but it was struggling, you know. Yep. I, don't, I don't even, I left, I stopped using Pro Tools many years ago. I got annoyed with them so much with DigiDesign and all that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think everyone what, did. What do you use? <clears throat> I'm a Logic. Oh, huh? Logic and just started messing with Luna. So, um, yeah. You like it? You like Luna? Um, so far, yeah. It seems really great. I mean, I, obviously Logic, I love it more for the, MIDI and everything else, but Luna's for recording live instruments. Seems like it's probably going to give Pro Tools a really good run for its money and, you know, I guess squeeze on them a little bit, but it seems great. Yeah. Is it expensive? Um, well, no, it's free. Oh, it's well, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, they've t- they've done what? Wait, there's more. <laughs> wait, there's more. Obviously, you have to use their platform, use their polo. and everything, and you need to buy that shit. You know, I mean, you know, they'll get you one way or the other. Come on. So, but it's still, I mean, you know, I, I, it's kind of, I guess, similar to what Apple did with Logic. You, you know, they're making you buy their product, which, um, you know, if you like universal audio stuff, that's that's great. And I like it. it. Sounds all great to me. So, yeah. But um, yeah. So, but I I guess things are changing so quickly nowadays with technology. I mean, y- you would just see things being done today that you wouldn't think would even be possible back. If you know. Oh yeah. I mean, we got so much power on the. I can sit here in my in this room, in my house, and I've got, you know really as many tracks as I want, you know, I mean, you can just do, you know, if I want to try something, I can just make copies and just, you know, it was, yeah, the capabilities that we have now are just, you know, crazy. I mean, I do miss this, actually the simplicity of the old studios because the hardware was all there. You didn't have to like, you know, scroll down through some menu to find a parameter, you know, it was like all the knobs are right on the gear and the, uh, you know, it does what it says it's going to do. And in five years, it'll do exactly the same thing. And you don't need to <laughs> update um, it. No. And you don't have to pay a subscription fee once you yeah. own it. Got it. Yeah. You don't have to keep backing up hard drives and blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. yeah, I imagine it's a, it's, it would have been such a cool time to be around doing all that stuff. You did, you weren't uh, around at all when if Eddie Van Halen was dropping in on Alan at all. No, I never met him. No, no, no. A lot of people used to come by, drop in, but I never, I never met Eddie. Yeah. That would have been cool to see those two cats together. Yeah, yeah. It would have been great to see him play together. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Alan was um, 
he was <laughs> he was definitely cut from one cloth. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Well, you know, he was. Um, how can I explain this? Well, like, um, like he. He told me that he wasn't into vintage guitars. Like everybody collects all these old guitars and stuff. And he just didn't care about that because right. he was always just looking for the best guitar for him so he could play the music he wanted to play. And so he just had, he, he, he had no notice nostalgia for his, for old gear. And, um, uh, like one time I, uh, probably back around metal fatigue or something like that. Um, I, had, I was working with this producer named Rick Knowles, who has pro produced uh, Stevie Nicks and Belinda Carlisle and a bunch of other stuff. And um, he needed a guitar on something. And I, and I recommended I, Alan because I knew Alan needed some money and he could get paid. Right. And so Alan came in and, and uh, a few days later, Alan says to me, he goes, well, you know, uh, if somebody hires me, to play on something, then that means they must know what, how I play and what I do. And they want, they must know that that's, that that's must be what they want. But if they hire me and they want me to, and they start asking me to play like somebody else, then I'm the wrong guy for the gig. There are people that do that, but I don't do that, you know? Yeah. Yep. And so he just, he just wanted to only play like he played and he, he, you know, he just really embodied this idea of, of um artistic integrity it really i mean he, i mean that, that's he wasn't trying that's just really who he was he just couldn't understand why he would want to do something that wasn't exactly what he needed to do you know but so and maybe that always did, you know didn't work out as well financially or something because he wasn't trying to chase sales he was just trying to make a, the best record he could right i guess when you play like alan holdsworth why would you want to play like anyone else? You know? Yeah. Right. How insane. Yeah. I, I saw him back. I can't even remember when, but I saw him at a pub in Melbourne, Australia, in this tiny little pub in Richmond, Melbourne. And we went there and, uh, man, it was just, he was played in the corner of this shitty little pub and just tore the roof off it. It was just incredible. And then I think I tried to talk to him later and he just seemed very shy um, beer in hand and, you know, yeah, uninterested in all the other shit except just playing the guitar and, you know, having a yeah. beer. I kind of got that vibe. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, and he was with that, like that with other people too. Like, I, I remember um, Alan Pasqua. Do you know Alan Pasqua? He's a keyboard player, yeah. a jazz keyboard player. Yeah. Alan Pasqua. yeah, he teaches at USC with me. Oh, okay. Yeah. So one time Alan comes – it comes into the studio. <laughs> hey, hi! I know these guys. Yeah. yeah. Hi. Hi. Look at the service he's getting. Can I know. What's I? It's like wow. Where's mine? What's going on? <laughs> wow. Okay. Bye. Hi. <laughs> so Alan. Alan comes in to do a solo. Right. Know, and and uh, uh, Alan Pasqua comes in and. You know, Holzworth doesn't have like a chord chart written out or anything. You know, Alan just comes in and he's trying to, so he's kind of taking it down and everything. And then he starts to record and Alan just leaves the room, you know? And so I'm just working 
with Pasqua and we uh, record whatever until we get something that he's happy with. Maybe an hour later or something, we go out and we get Alan and Alan comes in, he listens to it and, and you know, and, and Alan Pasqua says, well, do you, do you like it or something? He goes, no, man, you know, if you like it, then it's good. You know, he just like, he didn't want to direct anybody. He just wanted, he really, I think he just really, really loved this, you know, the, the personal expression, improvisational music and the personal expression. And uh, I mean, that's what jazz is, right? That's it. Right. Yeah. Wow. Did, did Alan talk about um, like any of his practice methods or how he's thought about the guitar or any of that kind of stuff? He did tell me he practiced. Yeah. I think he practiced, you know, he, he talked about that once to me and like he, I know he said that when he first picks up the guitar to practice the first, you know, the first thing he does is he just lets himself play anything. Right. He just goes off and plays whatever, but I think he practiced a lot and I think, and he would work on stuff for a long time before he ever made, took it public. Right. I would yeah. fucking hope so. <laughs> Cause yeah. if he didn't practice, I'd be really pissed off. No, he, he was for real. I mean, he yeah. totally knew, you know, I mean, I don't know how to explain it, but he, when he was like 18 or something like that, and he knew he really wanted to be a guitar player. He like locked himself away for like three years and just taught himself everything that he had to learn. And his grandfather was, a, I think it was his grandfather was a jazz pianist. Right. And so he learned a lot from his grandfather. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely, he, he didn't play like anyone. No. Just in, in I don't think he... I think he, and the way he thought about music, I think was completely different, you know, harmonically, you know, the way he thought about it, you know, did he ever talk about that with you? Like he didn't really talk. I've, I've heard interviews where he's talked about it, right. you know, kind of like he, he think he would, Oh, just one of the things I remember is like, you know, instead of just he, when he going, is going through chord changes, each chord he, that he's on, he's thinking of that as a, a whole new scale rather than just, you know, staying all in one key, he's thinking of these other, you know, all within one scale. He's thinking of new scales every time he's on a chord, which just gives you more harmonic options, right? Right. So I know he's thinking like that, but it goes way beyond that. I mean, I think that's... Scratching the surface. Yeah, you know, he was... He, he really knew what he was doing. He really... And he, he didn't just... He, he didn't just come up with a new way of doing it. He mastered a new way of playing you know it was crazy and and he had really big hands like i have big hands but his hands were like you know like my his hands were like that to my hands you know (laughs) wow wow yeah we we come so close to getting him on the show we were actually talking with him to come on the show um and he agreed to come on the show and then and then we decided you know what because we were going to go down, he was playing at Elvis, right, Bruce? Uh-huh. Elvis, and we're all going to go down, see the show, and we should have. I don't know what we were thinking, and we, we were going to interview and hang out backstage. And then we thought, well, now we've got all the time in the world. We must have him here in my studio back in North Hollywood. We need to have him here because it'll be more personable and we'll probably get more good stuff out of Alan. So we didn't do that. And then, you know, not long after that, he passed. Yeah. So it was just. Well, like, we also didn't want to bother him. You know, you're on a gig and. Yeah. 
Last thing you don't, want to, you don't want to do a radio show in, 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 during a gig. It's no, no. Yeah, yeah. We we just thought it would be better to have him on the show, and he was down for doing it, which is such a shame because I would have loved to have met him and had a beer with him. I think he would have been a cool cat to drink with. Oh yeah, you would have loved have a beer with him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like we had Joel Taylor on the show, who obviously toured with Alan, and he told some funny Alan stories. <laughs> just. <laughs> some crazy ass shit and some dark shit too. You know, he obviously uh, he had some dark stuff going on as well. But um, you know, I guess that was part of part of the parcel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He loved to drink. He loved to have fun. You know, he 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 loved to laugh and have fun and you know drink and have fun. I mean, it was he kind of lived for that. You know. Yeah, yeah. It, Alan, he's English, right? I'm not getting. Yeah, no, he's English. Yeah. He's a, yeah. He's a pom, right? For some reason, I was thinking he might have been something else, but he's a pommy bastard. <laughs> As us Aussies would say. Yeah, he just seemed like one of those cats that'd just be great to sit down and have a bunch of beers with and have a good laugh. Yeah. Damn. He left a he left a mark, that's for sure. Yeah. One of the one of the favorite um songs I ever uh record with him beside I uh guitar parts is like um there was a song on um on metal fatigue called home and uh it's a it it starts out speaking of drinking in pubs at, in England it starts out with a recording that he made um on a on a walkman it's a cassette walkman at a pub <laughs> in in uh his hometown it was uh where where was it on in um uh, hunslet leeds i don't know where that is do you know that do you know it no no i know where leeds is but yeah. uh, and a place i guess goodman's pub in hudson leeds and uh so anyway he um uh had this recording on on a walkman and we when we mixed it we blended that in but the the solo we had a we had a couple of solos that he really liked on electric guitar and one day he comes in it was in, in the morning with an acoustic guitar and he wanted to try an acoustic solo on it and so i took him out in this the warehouse at the we're at the music grinder and they had this big warehouse it was you know and um just this big room you know it was bow tress ceiling and brick walls and concrete floor with old carpets on it and stuff you know and a big old huge skylight and i put him on a stool set him and set him up with a mic and uh we recorded two solos and, and the second one is on the record it was like completely just completely unaffected and um it's one of the it was just, just such a beautiful solo i love that solo because it's just so i think heartfelt you know and, you know, I'm yeah. going to go back and listen to all these now that you've talked to about that because it's been a while since I've listened me to them. You've inspired me to want to go back and listen to this stuff again. You know, thank you for that. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I can't well, imagine Alan was a um, sit around the campfire with acoustic kind of guy though. No, I never. I, I since then I've learned that he has played acoustic from time to time, but that was the only time I ever saw him pick one up or play yeah. it. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. Well, I mean, there was that, you know, cause, uh, one time I was down, uh, I think it was in the secrets or sand or one of those records. And uh, there's a song 
on that record called Pudwud. And Pudwud is like his nickname for his, his daughter. Oh, wow. And, and so we were working on this song. <clears throat> so he had a, and that's, it was, it was a house he had in Tustin and he had a, a studio built in like this double car garage. He called it the brewery. And uh, so we were, I think we were mixing that song and um, it was, you know, eight o'clock at night or something like that or nine. And his daughter in like diapers was just crawling around the legs of the console and crawling around the control room. We're working on this song. It's named after her. And I was just sat back and I was just listening to the music and looking at Alan and, you know, he was just this family guy, you know, he had kids and he had a big heart and he wrote that kind of music and he wrote a song like that for his daughter. And it was just like, so I don't know, you know, there's sometimes there's those moments that just kind of come together and it just brings that humanity of all of it really together. And I just, you know, you, you story you got the theme as a uh, normal human Alan, as opposed right. to guitar God, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's who he really was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like he wasn't all that taken with the whole Guitar God label or any of that stuff. No, he hated that. Really? Yeah, that was in the record, you know, this, uh, the man who changed guitar forever or whatever, you know, that was the record company and stuff. He didn't, no, he didn't, he scoffed at that. He hated that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He never tried to be that. He just tried to play. One time he told, he starts playing like some kind of rock thing, you know, like some kind of like, uh, I don't know, just like, and he goes, he goes, this is who I really, he, this is who I am. You know, he says, I just never stopped. He's kept pushing himself, you know, and he says, I just wanted to be able to solo over any changes. Wow. And so, you know, it's kind of the things that all guitar, like you're trying, you, that's what you want to do, right? That's, that's what we all want to be able to do. And, and not bore people to tears. Yeah. <laughs> that and piss off our parents. Piss off, well, you know, <laughs> I did that anyway. I didn't, I didn't need a guitar, but, you know, that helped. So, wow, man. And do you play? You- well, I play, you know, I play a little bit. I mean, I've had a guitar since I was a teenager goofing around with it, but I because of the guitar players that I've worked with, I, I don't say I play guitar. I say I play with the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Who's some of the other cats that you got to work with over the years? Well, <clears throat> uh, I don't know, major guitar players. I don't know, I worked with a lot of the studio guys, you know. Who is some um, of the studio cat? Um. I mean, did you have Landau and those kind of cats? Yeah, yeah I worked with Michael Landau. Yeah. Oh, I know. Could you probably, because you work with uh, Wilson Phillips, right? Is China still married to him? Sorry? Is, is China still married to Landau? No, they, um, <laughs> she, she told me once she got sick of him coming home at four in the morning with white powder all over his face and stuff in his hair. she's she's now moved on she's with um um uh baldwin one of the baldwin brothers oh yeah um but uh yeah she she did mention some interesting times of alan but yeah but you you obviously uh sorry we've uh 
Yeah. You so you worked with him, Landau. Yeah, he was. He played on a lot of that, like Belinda Carlisle stuff, and he was, you know, what Belinda Carlisle album was this? Uh, there, uh, Heaven is a Place on Earth. Oh wow! I, and then there was the next one called uh, <laughs> Runaway Horses. Yeah. Oh my god, man! That was when I. That takes me back to when I was eighteen in Australia. Just got my car license, and that was one of the five rotating CDs in my car stereo for a long time. That was a great tracks, man. Yeah. Great playing. That's and that's obviously all the session cats, right? All doing yeah. that thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, yeah. like Jeff Picaro and those guys, you know, it was wow. he was just like he was the like the quintessential studio drummer. I mean, he was just unbelievable. He yeah. would just, he could just play like he could play to a click track, and he would just be, he would sound like he wasn't because he could just he would just lay it back, lay the hi hat back, and just sound like he was just creeping along. He was he was just un, he was un otherworldly. And I mean, he would smoke these joints that you know, and then he'd like put it down and go okay, and he'd go out and he'd play like that. Wow, I don't know how he could do it, but he was <laughs> a monster. <clears throat> And sweet guy, you know, really such a sweet guy. Yeah. That would have been really cool to, to see some of those sessions and be a part of that back in the day. And Vinny Caluda, he's one Vinnie, of the... Yeah. And uh, Lee Sklar. Did you ever work with Lee? I, I, really early on as an assistant, he, was, uh, he came in, he was playing on a session. I can't remember what it was, but he was... He was the bass player, and I. Yep. And even back then, I was like, "Oh, it's Lee." <laughs> <laughs> we had him on the show. We had a, a big beard. <laughs> yeah, what a great man. man! Great man. Yeah. Wow. So, when was the last time you were kind of doing the session stuff with cats, cats in in LA for for that kind of stuff? The last uh, session like that that I recorded was is uh, uh, probably eight years ago or something like that. Yeah, that recording and it was. And it was for uh, an Indonesian guitar player named Diwa Bujana. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's, no. he's this fantastic Indonesian fusion guy. He's a big pop star there. Right. And the band named Gigi, G-I-G-I, however they pronounce it. And um, so he started, he got into, you know, this jazz fusion. And he, so he came over here and it was Jimmy Johnson on bass and, um, and Vinny was on uh, drums and, uh, uh, and Diwa. And so we cut all the tracks and then, and we did it, we did it at um, Henson studios, which is oh, the yeah. old A&M, yep. you know, and I hadn't been in there forever. And it was just so fantastic to go in there because it was the same. They like, they've like preserved it. I mean, there's a lot of the stuff since Henson bought it that they changed, but they kept the music studios exactly the same. Even the, the fish tank lounge was still the fish tank lounge. And so it was just great. And they have this unbelievable mic collection. It was, you know, for someone like me, it's just like, Oh my God, I can't, it's just fantastic. But so then D would take the tracks and take them home and, and uh, do all of his overdubs, then send them back. And I, and I would mix it. So I, um, that was the last time I really tracked anything like that. Um, but I mixed a couple other, so I've, worked on two other records where he would record everything and then he would send me, send me the tapes and I'd mix it for him. Yeah. Yeah. On yeah. stuff like that, how many back and forths before the customer's happy? Oh, well, it can get kind of wild. 
Yeah. Because, you know, I'll, I'll mix it and I'll send it to him and then he'll, I'll, and he'll, he'll make some comments. I'll make some changes to send to him. And then he'll send me 10 more tracks. <laughs> and then that changes everything, right? Like you can't just lay in 10 tracks. It's a re- completely, re- so it just, you know, it gets kind of, it can get kind of crazy. Yeah. But then he'll do stuff like one time I was putting up this one song and he's got strings, you know, and I, my first real, a real orchestra. And my first impression is that thought is like, Oh, I hope this is okay. That could be some, you know, I don't know why I was thinking this, but maybe it would be some bad orchestra, Indonesian orchestra somewhere or something. I didn't know what I, I didn't, I don't know. I shouldn't have thought that, but it, I, I did. And then I start putting it up and I start going, they can hope it. It's recorded exactly right. You know, like all the things are like laid out right and it's recorded really well. And I, and then it, it's, it's in tune and it's really nice. And it was, and he, he went to Prague and recorded the orchestra. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> it's fantastic. Cause the song was for his mom. It was a song about his mom. You know? Wow. That's yeah. really cool. Wow. When- when you're doing the mixing stuff, do you use, do you have a go-to reference or something that an album that you were just like, ah, this is the, I would say is the duck's guts of, you know, albums or a reference point for mixing or do you have anything like that? That's one of your faves. Well, I think that's a really good question. Cause I, um, uh, I do use references. I think it's, you know, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's just to, you can kind of get lost when you're mixing something, you just kind of get lost in it. And so it, if you listen to something else, it, it like refreshes your ears kind of. And um, also just to see how your mixes are, com- my mixes are competing, you know, not trying to copy things at all, but I mean, just like if you switch from this mix to this mix to my mix, is it going to, is it going to compete? Is How is it going to sound? Because songs are always played with front and back with other songs, especially now in playlists. Right. Right. So, you know, um, and I, and the, and the same thing when I did TV commercials, that was, um, they always play in pods with other commercials, you know, you had to be able to compete, you know? And so what makes that, what makes one song or sound sound better or, or a commercial sound better than another, right? It's more than just volume. So. So Tricky. what, what reference do you, do you have an album that you, Always I don't have one album. I don't right. have one album, but I, I'll, I'll try to find things. I'll just try to play things from the same genre. Right. Now, tell me this. Why, <laughs> why hasn't anyone invented a home compressor that you can have on your TV so when you're watching a movie or a show and then the ads come on, they're so fucking loud, you're like, God, turn the TV down. <laughs> How much do they pump up know. the ads nowadays? Well, it's, they're, they're, they're actually, um, it's actually, actually regulated in broadcast TV. It's regulated. So, um, yeah, there's, a, there's a L, the LKFS, um, uh, or LUFS and it's supposed to be minus 24. It can't be more than two dB hotter than that. And so it didn't used to be regulated. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I guess, but I guess the whole idea of a of a commercial is is it pushes the limit of the north uh, to the north, right? And usually, when you end a scene, you end kind of on a decrescendo. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To yeah. that's just the way you do it. So the, the, I think the stark difference of the decrescendo of the 
drive yeah. up or whatever you're watching, <laughs> and then something coming in at the positive northern limit of what it could be. Right. It seems like it's so much. It is louder, but it's not like any louder than the loudest part of what was in the body of what you'd been listening to. Right. Well, and it's content. So if you're yeah. watching something and, you know, and, and it's, it's a little, it's dialogue and people are talking and there's a little bit of stuff going on, maybe a little music, you know, that's, you know, that's completely different than a commercial coming on with like, you know, with music and sound effects completely pressed right up at the top, you know? Yeah. So that's why you're getting it. So, and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what it is. I mean, they're getting away with it, but it's true. I mean, it is loud. Yeah. How how hard are you guys hitting that with compressors and that when you do the commercial stuff? Like, because I we do a lot of trailer music. Um, my company that I have, and um, <laughs> the trailer world is like, can you get it any louder? Can you really? Can you push it louder, please? <laughs> that's right. kind of the vibe we want it louder um right so you know they're maxing everything out a lot of the times yeah well with 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 broadcast you know they they have regulations you know that they have limits they and um i know it's changed it's changing but like hbo has specs and you know these depending on what you're mixing for they have delivery specs and you have to hit yeah. those yeah yeah so it's it's a little bit different and when I mix stuff for uh, the internet, like if I know it's just going to be on YouTube or something like that, I have a different thing. I mean, I, um, what do you guys use like LKFS? Do you use that? No, I'm sure they, they're probably using that when, when they're mixing the full trailer and they're doing the full mix with the trailer, but we're, we're kind of before that process. Right. Cause I, cause when I'm mixing stuff for like YouTube or whatever, I, um, well, I can't, it's kind of, I just kind of came up with it myself by going, by watching YouTube, like hundreds of things and looking at what people are doing looking at an average, because there's places where when, if you're watching something where it's just too squashed, you know, it's too, it just sounds mangled. Yeah. And then there's times when it just sounds wimpy, you know? So where, what's the sweet point? Where does it sound really good? Also, you know, YouTube and places, all, they all have algorithms that adjust things they're all, they're not going to let you get away with they they want it to be kind of even they want you to be able to watch you know youtube and watch a bunch of videos and not be getting pasted up against the wall and <laughs> yeah you know and uh so yeah. they're they're leveling stuff out but i think it's lkfs like minus 12 minus 14 is which is like 10 db hotter than for broadcast right it's kind of where i would put it is kind of where I kind of had try to hit it. And when you're like mixing albums and stuff, have you noticed a difference to say five, 10 years ago or back even earlier where mm -hmm. the levels were and the dynamics and how hard they were hitting those albums? Yeah, it's right. Well, it kind of depends on what kind of music you're talking to, but talking about, but if you're like talking about like the pop stuff yep. that's going on right now, you know, that's, that stuff is like minus eight, some of that stuff, LKFS. And um, the reason I, I use that is because it measures like an average energy of, for a long period of time. And so you can really, you're not just measuring peaks. 
Right. And, and when you're also when you're using that, the peaks are gone. I mean, the dynamics are just being completely squashed. Um, I would never squash something, even if it was pop music, I wouldn't squash it that much. I'd maybe go minus 10. But you know, if you get if you open it up a little bit, like minus 12 or something, then you get a little, it's still gonna be really hot and still gonna be right up there, but it's not gonna, you're gonna, it's not gonna feel like a you know, it's just, it's not going to have that compression, to, that distortion you get when you over compress stuff, when you over limit yeah. it. Yeah. So there's a play, a sweet spot in there where I think it kind of works, you know. And I feel like with MP3s and that, um, that whole, when that all come in, <clears throat> that seemed to where a lot of music was really squashed and really compressed hard. Yeah. Kind of feel like, and you might know more than I do, but, at the moment, I'm feeling like music is getting more back to dynamics, having more dynamics, and they're less doing that. And then Apple bringing in their new mixing and at, is it Atmos? Atmos. Atmos, yeah, um, and stuff like that. So I kind of feel like it. we're getting another another step, like yeah. a step through the MP3s. We've kind of realised that that was kind of all shitty and... Yeah there's better versions of what we can have with music. So with the Atmos and stuff like that. And I mean, yeah, I, th I think you're right. And, I'm, and I hope so that, you know, well, technology is changing and, you know, an MP3 is a, can be a very small file. And they yeah. did that because we didn't have memory, you know, yeah. now, you know, memory is cheap. It's nothing. So, and it's, yep. and the internet's fast. We can stream things higher quality. So hopefully it's know, that's definitely going to be the case. Yeah. I tried I tried the Apple earpods with the that new Atmos and it's it's amazing. Incredible. And also I guess Logic Pro has come out with an update where you can now mix on headphones with that capability of surround sound and Atmos in Logic Pro which is really cool. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's a cool. AirPods you can do this or do you need the new AirPod, AirPods? No, you should be able just if it was just really good headphones, oh, you know, I mean, pot the the pods, ear pods might be okay, but um, the, if you have a really good set of ear, because the idea with the Atmos is that it can go from you know this huge theater mix, you know, whatever fifteen one or whatever fifteen four, and it can go down to seven two and five one, and then it can finally fold down to stereo where it'll play surround on, on a pair of headphones using um, binaural sound, you know, which is like, like a phasing thing, right? Mm. But it really does work. I mean, they've gotten it down pretty good. You can kind of hear sound coming from behind and forward and things like that. That's from the, but it's all done with phasing and stuff. So um, yeah, it's really cool. So if you have a really good pair of headphones, you know, um, that's like, that's the, that's the virtual reality. You know, that's the audio version of virtual reality or uh, the mate, the audio mate to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it seems like a pretty cool direction that's heading in. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Exciting time. Yeah. It's time to dust these suckers off and give them a test drive. Yeah. <laughs> it's a headphone. <laughs> now, is that something you, you'll be interested to start mixing that kind of stuff? You know, my only interest in that is to use um, 
Atmos or, you know, um, to incorporate that in music mixes. Mm. So if I wanted, if, you know, if you had headphones on and you were listening to it, maybe the, you know, the string pads are coming from somewhere else. You're coming from behind a little better. You know, if you're maybe the, maybe the, uh, whatever's doing whatever's playing the melody is stepping forward a little bit out of the speakers and you don't really, you listen to it and you don't know why, but it's because of, it's because of those tools. I mean, I'm interested in exploring that, but I'm not really interested in mixing video games and stuff like that. No, no. But yeah, like you said, I mean, I, I, was just checking out the new logic update and uh-huh. it's it's insane how you can move the sound over your head and you know have it travel around you and yeah and it's it sounds it sounds legit it's really it's really amazing yeah yeah it's getting better too yeah I mean, so yeah we may be done with the mp3 yet <laughs> I hope so. Well, is it MP4? Isn't that what they got going on now? Or- yeah, well, you know, at and Apple lossless, I guess. And I don't even know where they're at, but, you know, so everything you do, what do you record at? Are you at like 48 or? If you're doing, if I'm doing a documentary, it's all 48. Yeah. 24 bit. But if I'm, when I mix music, it, you know, it depends. A lot of times it depends on what it's come, what, whatever they have it recorded at. Right, right. So I'm not really recording that much, so I'm not really setting up that. Are you? What are, what are people mainly recording at when you do get those files? Like, wh- where's it usually sitting at? Like 96. 96, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people do, uh, what is it, 88.2. Which right. Because the math is easier then to fold it down to 44.1, but. Right. Is there, I don't, I is there any is. need to go to 44.1 anymore? Because that was only for CD, right? Right. Nobody's doing CDs anymore. I mean, yeah. people, wait, there are wait, CDs. Wait a minute here. <laughs> no, I mean, people do CDs, but I mean, it's not like it was, you know. It's yeah, not, yeah. Um, you're, I mean, that's a good point, you know. That's not, that maybe is not your important, the main thing that you're trying to uh, accomplish. Right, right. So, but if you record it, you record at 44.1 and you say you get a session and some instruments have been recorded at 44.1 and some have been recorded at other sample rates. Do you ever hear a difference? What Do your ears hear the difference between those sample rates? I don't know if I really hear the difference between 41 and 48. I don't think I, I don't think I do, but I but I definitely hear the difference between, you know, a wave file and an MP3, even a high quality MP3. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You no, know, I, I, that's really obvious to me. Yeah. Do you, do you have a deal in the high end audio world, you know, when they're doing 192 and stuff like that? I haven't. No. Mm-hmm. no those high end audio guys. Uh, and I don't know what. I'm not really sure what that. A lot of that audiophile stuff is, you know, it's, it's, it's all smoke and mirrors. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's a yeah. Yeah. You know, like, you know, like you want to sell this monster cable, you know, for your speakers or whatever, for, you know, hundreds of dollars. And if you just went and bought a piece of some zip cord at Home Depot, the same gauge, you, you would be, you know, 
<laughs> you'd be you'd be the same place. You wouldn't. Yeah. Be, you can't. You know. And so I don't know. So much of it is. I've walked into some of those places and to listen to their speakers and stuff, and they'll have them all set up, and they'll be wired out of phase, and they can't even. The people who work there can't even hear that they're out of phase. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I called them on it. I said, "Oh, you, these are out of phase." No, they're and they'll chase it down and <laughs> because because I'm an old school engineer. Because I'm an old school engineer, we didn't have things to tell us if stuff was out of phase. You had to be able to hear it. Yeah. yeah. So it's like it's kind of like something that's you know hearing something that's out of tune. Once you once you uh, you know train you know, your ear, you can't yeah, you know you can't not hear it. <laughs> Bruce. I think you should introduce our guest. <laughs> We've not even told everybody who he is, right? <laughs> you haven't told anyone. Robert. Oh, my God. Robert, sorry about that. This was great. <laughs> We're going to try all the cards. This is Robert Feast. Feist. Feist or Feast? Feist. It's Feist, yeah. Feist. Thank you. Are you related to uh, the Feist from Canada? No, no, the singer. No. <laughs> yeah. Robert and I became friends here because he lives here in Monterey and we, and we just by chance met and he's just, I mean, and we just became fast friends and it keeps blowing in my mind with all the stories he tells. And I said, guitar winkers got to know about this. And there's one story, Robert, I'm thinking of that I'd love you to share with our listeners that you told. It was back in your, your early days in, in Colorado when you had a gig at a hotel up in the mountain. Oh. And, and I don't know if you mind sharing that with us, but that, that to me is like something I think everybody would really find quite interesting. Okay. All right, all right. On by request. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so my, the first gig that I had doing live sound was – at um, a hotel up in Estes Park, Colorado, um, called um, uh, Stanley Hotel. And it's an old hotel, it's built like around 1900 by uh, the guy who invented the Stanley Steamer car. Not and it was, it was like a little escape way. So they, part of the hotel, it's a grand old hotel. It's still there and it's really beautiful and it's, um, and uh, it was a little run down when I was there, but they had a, a concert hall that was like an old school concert hall with this, you know, the stage and everything it was built for like string quartets and stuff like that. Well, they decided to uh, put acts, you know, rock acts and folk acts and stuff in there. So they built a, uh, a, uh, a bar in the corner and started booking it. And they brought me up to, to, to mix the live sound. I'm like 22 years old. And so, um, uh, so one day I walk in and I'm walking, I'm, it's, it's broad daylight and I'm walking through the place and I start kind of feel somebody over in the corner and I, uh, look over there and there's nobody there and there's nobody behind the bar and the hair on my arm starts to stand up, you know? And so I, when, uh, when my boss showed up, I was telling him, telling him about it. And he said, Oh yeah, this place, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's haunted, you know? And he starts telling me stories about the hotel, you know, like the cleaning lady would come in and she would hear like someone playing pool and she'd go in the pool room and the balls would be rolling, but there'd be nobody there. And so then he, he told me that he, 
he said, well, even, you know, there's even been a book written by the place about the place. And he asked me if I knew who Stephen King was. And I, and I, I had, I didn't, but um, so he said, well, he had, he'd written this book called the shining about the hotel. Wow. And it ha- wasn't, the book wasn't even out yet, but he said, there's already a movie deal and uh, Stanley Kubrick's going to make this movie. And I knew who Stanley Kubrick was. And so I asked him if I could get a copy of it. And he says, well, I have a, I have a copy that the owner, it's the owners that the owner lended me, but you have to give it back. So he gave me this pre-release hard copy of, of the shining. And I'm at the hotel where Stephen King was when he <laughs> wrote it. I mean, Stephen King stayed there and he, you know, it was, it was, maybe he didn't write the whole book there, but it was based on, on that hotel. And a lot of the things that are in the book happened at that hotel, like the old um, elevator would run, you know, by itself and stuff. And, and uh, so at some point, some guys broke into that concert hall and they stole the recording, the little recording board that we had and a bunch of stuff. So we got some replacement stuff, but my boss said, he told me he wanted me to start sleeping there to make sure that nothing else got ripped off. <laughs> I like this. So I, you know, um, and because the place had been ripped off before they clo- we closed down for the night, you know, at two in the morning, the bartender would tell me I had to go downstairs and check and make sure nobody was hiding in the basement. And the basement was this was an old bowling alley and had these bowling lanes. It was like full of cobwebs and boxes of stuff and old furniture. And I'd go down there and, you know, just an old light bulb hanging, you know, and trying and, and scared to death. And I, so at night after everybody left, I was a slow reader. So I was kept trying to read this. I was addicted to the book. I was like, just, you know, and I, and so after everybody left and, you know, it's like two in the morning and I, I, I was, I would roll my sleeping bag out in the lobby because there was a little indoor outdoor carpet in there. It was a little easier on me. And the only, the only light was this light coming from the cigarette machine. So I would lean up against the cigarette machine at like three in the morning and read the shining. <laughs> while you're, while you're, they, I think, wasn't it called like the overlook or something in the book? What yeah. Was it was the overlook in the book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that's just how Stephen King would want you to read that book. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh my God! What did you think when you finally saw the movie? Oh, I think the, the book is way better. Right, the book's <laughs> scarier because in the uh, book you realize that the hotel is kind of alive and that these entities in the hotel want the kid because he's he has the shine, so he's powerful. So they want to kill him so that they can have him. And be more powerful. Right. And you know, that doesn't really come across in the movie. How? And I didn't even know that. And I love that movie. How did you read that book and not like just shit your pants? At the uh, hotel? I, I don't know. I, I thought it was funny. I don't know. I liked it. Oh, man. You must have balls of steel, man, doing that. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> That's why he can do mixes. Because <laughs> <laughs> nothing scares me. He's got a God complex, you know? <laughs> wow. That's an amazing story. Just, just thinking back, do you have any funny stories about Alan over the years that stand out? Oh, funny. Funny stories. Um, or, or dark, wonderful stories. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not off the top of my head. Any any, um, any great um, memories that favorite memories of Alan that stand out for you? I mean, I know that's hard to just whip that out of your head, but I'm just curious. Um, let me see. I made a few notes. Let me just see. I can't believe you're at the, the hotel. The Shining was made. That, that was a cool little gig, though. I, oh yeah, my it was god! Great. I, how long? A sleeping bag in the fucking lobby, man. Right. How long did you do that for? I, I I was there like three or four months. Jesus, you know, it was like a lot of these clubs. They don't make enough money to that when he couldn't pay me anymore, and and they they were letting me stay sleep in the hotel, and when they. And uh, they told me I couldn't do that anymore. I had to find an apartment or something and I couldn't find a place to live and they weren't paying me. And so I went back, I drove back to Denver. Damn. Yeah. That's a cool story. Yeah. Cool story. Uh, so Robert, like um, what, what kind of projects are you working on now? Are you working on like any specific projects? Uh, you uh Obviously, you could write a memoir about all the amazing stories you just told here. Are you doing things like I mean, that? You would, that's funny that you would say that, Bruce. Really? <laughs> yeah, I am. Actually, I've been working on a memoir for a couple, couple of years. Ah. And uh, um, I'm, uh, I've been, I'm working on, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going through it again because I got some notes from an editor. So I'm making another pass through it. So yeah, it's coming. It's coming. It's still not ready, but uh, yeah, if any of your listeners would like to go to robertfeist.com. Okay. Yeah, man. You could, you could sign up. You could put your, I have a, because I, I do a blog, a little mini blog, and you could put your name in there. And then when uh, it's ready, I'll email you and, you know, get a copy of it. Oh, man, that'd be great. Do, do you know when that's coming out or any projection? I'm going to say at least a year. Right. Because it takes time for these things and I'm not finished with it. Although yeah. I, it's, um, it's a book. I mean, you can read it. It's got a beginning and a middle and an end, but it's just not done. Right. You know, yeah. got to go through the editorial process and everything. And this is, so, this is your history through the recording story. Yeah, well, then. it is a story about working with the famous and the not so famous, but it's mostly a story of, you know, um, overcoming obstacles in your life and taking risks and, you know, things like that. It's, that's really what it's built around, you know? Yep. Cause I really came from, you know, I, you know, I was working in these horrible, fa- I was destined to a life as a factory laborer, you know? And so um, I probably shouldn't have been as nearly as successful as I had been. So, uh, oh, so you want to share some insights with us on that and um, your thoughts on that, you know, um, well, I'll tell you one thing. I do have an, you just made. You know what I mean? No, well, I do have. I'll tell. You, I'll tell you another Alan Holsworth story of something that was. Yeah. It's not. It's not a. It's a. It's a great lesson, but it's not necessarily a great reflection on me. But it's a great, a, a really a great lesson. Um, somewhere around like, the album Secrets or something like that. Um, we went into Conway, which is, Conway recording is like one of the nicest studios in LA. I mean, it's really, it's definitely an A-class studio. Everybody's recorded or mixed mixed there. So we went in there to mix a song and um, we started working on it at some point during the day. And 
and then it got late and then it became morning, you know, and we're still working on it. And Alan's very meticulous and he's just, you know, we're listening. He's making little changes you can't hear and things like that. And, and at some point I just, I just sort of like let go, you know, I just kind of went, I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, and I didn't like go, fuck it. I've had enough and walk out of the studio. It was nothing like that. It was very subtle. I just really, I just kind of stepped back from the console and I saw him reach up and make a little adjustment on one of the faders. And I just kind of stepped back and I just, it, and it wasn't really Alan. It, you know, I've been working in these studios for a long time at that point. And as a recording engineer, you know, I'm, you would come in, I would go in the studio at, you know, nine or 10 in the morning. And I'd leave at nine or 10 the next morning. You know, and I did a lot of that stuff and it was, I was just getting burnt out. And so somewhere around five in the morning, I just kind of stepped back from the console and I just was like watching him and I just, I didn't say anything. It was just a little subtle thing. But then a couple of days later, he goes, I felt you give up. He goes, you gave up. You know? And uh, he was completely right. Well, I'd worked with him so much that he just, you know. And um, that mix never didn't never got released. Oh wow! And so that whole thing, that whole session was you know that whole night and everything was wasted. And I felt like it had it just because I wouldn't push that little bit you know push a little bit further. And the lesson from that for me was like you never get a second chance to make the make to make the record you're making right now. You know, and you just, you can't, you can't give up and you've got to push it that extra bit. And from then on, I'm telling you, nobody could outwork me because I would never give up again. Wow. That became a, like a, you know, a challenge. Sometimes I'd wait for people to get tired and fall asleep so I can do the work and finish it. <laughs> they would get out of my way. The logical question that I have, well, maybe it isn't, maybe it's a stupid question. It's like, hey, Alan. Let's come back tomorrow, fresh ears. Well, why not that result? <laughs> well, because you you book a studio and you have it for that one day, and right, you know, okay. that, you know. <laughs> right. Well, that doesn't really happen anymore, does it? Because you can go, well, we'll just pick this up tomorrow. We'll be back in the bedroom tomorrow, kind of thing, right? Right. If you had the studio booked and you could come back, that would, that would have been yeah, right, right. That's kind of funny that he said that. It's it's. I think that's kind of cool that it left that imprint on you to be like. Uh -huh. I'll show you. <laughs> yeah. So d don't give up. Don't give you're up on something. You're working on your art or something, you know. But th that sounds like a general, you know, thing. Like, you, I mean, just to say, like, I'm, I was really destined to be this and I became this. And, you know, I mean, uh -huh. that that's a real powerful statement. You know what I mean? And the, the things that made it possible for you of course it's fortune on some levels you know i mean besides right. being good and working hard there are turns of events and and timing involved here but just insights in terms of your own personal learning obviously the one you just talked about with alan is huge any other sort of capstone moments that kind of synthesize exactly what you what you meant by that statement well, there were, there were many times when, you know, I had just jumped, you know, I kind of made a leap of faith. Like when I, you know, I would quit these jobs, like even that factory job, it was a horrible job, but it was, you know, there are people that worked there that had worked, well, had, 
they were lifers. They worked there their whole life because you could, you know, you had health insurance and you had things taken care of for you. You could just go to work and, you know, so I just kept jumping, you know, figuring out my next move and then making the move, even though I was risking taking risks. And I think you have to do that. You have to, if you're going to move forward at some point points, you have to, you have to take risks. It was, and a lot of, I would imagine a lot of saying, yeah, I can do that when you had no clue what you were really doing. Right. Well, I used to have a saying back then that I would jump in over my head and learn how to swim on the way up. <laughs> I was okay. I've been doing that on this show since day one. <laughs> How's that been working out, Troy? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. That's, that's, why, that's why I have COVID now because I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> it's incredible. Do you have COVID? Do you have COVID? Yeah, I found out the other day I got the COVID. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. How so, do you think you got it? I, 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 well, I, I think blaming one of the kids is out of the question now because she's she hasn't got COVID and she's she's better. Um, so I think it was me going to the gym, trying to make myself more healthy and more fit. <laughs> uh, I think I, I that's what I'm assuming. But yeah, kind of an oxymoron to, to actually have done that. But uh, you're in kind of a hot spot too, right? Nashville's kind of yeah. I'm out in Tennessee, so um. Yeah. I completely blame Nash- Nashville. This is what they give the visitors from California. <laughs> <laughs> now go home and bring it to everybody else. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How long have you lived in Car- is it, you're in Carmel. How long have you lived there for? Yeah, I'm uh in, I'm in Monterey actually. Oh, Monterey, right. 4 years, 4 years. Yeah. It's a good part of the world. Yeah. And I, I I never dreamed that I would, it was, I never dreamed that I would end up here. I mean, I knew this area. I just didn't think that was, you know, it was kind of a fluke really. Cause I got hired as a consultant to put a studio in a winery in Carmel Valley called wow. Folktail Winery. So right. we started coming up here. I mean, my wife started coming up here when that project was going on we just kind of fell in love with it. And so we decided to do it. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful part of the world. I, I could definitely see myself in that area. Yeah, man. Right? Yeah. yeah we got Robert. Now we're going to get you. Yeah. That's I'm going right. to bring the cove with me. Yeah, well, <laughs> you can leave that behind. By the time you get here, it'll be COVID-20. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and I'll be up to booster number 28. Yeah. So, But, man, I got to say, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Uh, where do we go to the website again? Say the website again. Uh, robertfeist.com f-e-i-s-t feist.com um where where's the name feist for you from from where does it's it go german back? it it's is german. german yeah yeah well we won't hold that against you but that's that's all good <laughs> <laughs> man a real pleasure to to talk with you and please keep in touch because we would love to know when the book comes out and um i'm sure we've got a lot of listeners that would love to read that and check that out yeah. Maybe you guys would let me come on again when the book comes out. Oh, I mean, that, would be, that would be an amazing idea. Yeah. I mean, you'd be willing to come back? Yeah. 
<laughs> well, I need some time to kind of heal, but oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. By, by then, the, the the damage will have like mitigate. You know, like if he eased a little bit, you'll be ready for another. You know, leap of faith, as you call it. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Robert, before you go, before we let you go, one, give us one mixing tip for all the budding mixers out there that are just trying to make their song sound decent at wherever they're at. Oh, that's a good one. Um, no, I can definitely do this. Uh, I think there's a couple basic balances that are really important. And one of them is the melody should be balanced with the bass. I think if the root, I think of that, I think of like music, the music, like an arrangement, a music arrangement is kind of like a chord, right. a musical chord. And so you don't want one note sticking way out and another, you know, you know, in a chord, you want to, you want these notes to blend. And so the bass has to work with the, uh, with the melody. I think that's a really important internal balance. And then, you know, then you've got um, the, uh, like the keyboard or guitars or whatever, where you get your, your, your musical uh, references, your music references, and those should come in. I really, even though, People tend to want to mix with the drums really, really loud. The drums are really a supportive instrument and should be right up in there pushing and supporting, but they shouldn't dominate. The things that should dominate are, is the, you know, the melody, the vocal. So yeah. that's my tip. I like, I like that. And yeah. favorite, do you have a favorite mixer or engineer? Um. Well, I used to like, you know, like Clear Mountain and Mick Gazowski, you know, those, yeah. those yeah. guys. Yeah. Just curious. That's yeah. cool, man. Well, I'll, we will take that advice. And okay. Then, <laughs> okay. <laughs> somewhere. So we all good, Bruce? I'm good. Well, you know, yeah, I'm good. I don't have COVID <laughs> unless you gave it to me. This, <laughs> this may be the last Guitar Wank episode. We just don't know yet. <laughs> Are you, are you feeling? Shit, we're dead, you know? <laughs> are you feeling bad? You seem like you're feeling okay. <laughs> I'm all right. No, I've got um, the, the last couple of days I've had the body aches and it, it feels like it's in the head a little bit at the moment, the cold and congested. But for the most part, compared to what, you know, other people have gone through, through I feel very, mm-hmm. very okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's... Uh, it's all it's all the eucalyptus leaves I've been boiling up and drinking. Yeah. Yeah, snuggle up here with the koala bear and you know you'll be okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've, been, I've been sucking on a dead dingo's donger. Oh. <laughs> I don't encourage that unless you have COVID. Don't do that if you have COVID. That's right. Yeah. Put some Vegemite on the Barbie and you'll be okay. You know? <laughs> hey, right. <laughs> It's going to be hard to get here in Nashville. <laughs> Robert, it was a real real pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, man. Have invite. a safe one. Thank you, Bruce. Right. Bye-bye. 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 Next time. All right. <laughs> See ya. See ya.